Good morning. I'm so happy to be here with you guys. Uh, today, today's message is on a subject that is very, very dear to me, and it's probably dear to your heart as well, actually. Um, we're going to talk about God's mercy this morning. Um, you probably are aware, I, I, I do tend to, to spend quite a bit of time talking about the justice of God, about uh, sin, um, but the reason that all of that is something that we can even discuss is because, praise God, we have his mercy. And so that's what we're going to discuss today. This, this is a truly engaging topic when you realize this is literally the only way that any of us will ever get to heaven, is by the mercy of God. And so uh, I hope that each of you will listen and will, will carefully weigh what you're hearing this morning. Um, and by the way, this is a shorter sermon. Praise the Lord. So this, this message, yes, <laughs> this message basically has two parts. It just struck me that this front row is wonky. It needs to go this way. Anyway, um, it's all right. Uh, sorry. Are you talking about the Thomas family or the church? <laughs> Both, no. Um, no, so the first thing that we're going to do is we're going to talk about, um, and this sounds very academic, and it will be, and that's okay. We're going to talk about the root words that are translated mercy in the original languages uh, of the Bible, and so we're going to have a better understanding of this subject matter. And it, um, it's often been said, uh, Craig's not here this morning for me to, to ask him to say it out loud, but it has often been said that the difference between grace and mercy is that grace is receiving a blessing that we don't deserve, whereas mercy is not receiving the punishment that we do deserve. And that's not a bad rule of thumb, but in the Bible, it, it really, both words are a lot more complicated than that, and so... Uh, we're going to unpack mercy in God's word today, both so that we can have a good feel for what it is, but also so we know how the word applies it with regard to God and with regard to us. Okay, so why don't we open with prayer? Um, Father God, I just I want to thank you for the folks that are, that are here and for those that are not here today also, Lord, um, I know we're missing a few, and we just ask in Christ's name for, uh, for safety for those that are traveling. Um, Father, we pray that you be with each person if, if anyone is ill. Father, we, uh, I thank you for a really good morning. Thank you for uh, just feeling like um, it's a, a good kickoff for Sunday school and um, for, for a lot of good feedback today from people. Um, Father, I ask that as we, as we get into your word right now, Father, that we'll take some stuff with us, Lord. I pray that we will, we will uh, really resonate with the message on mercy because, Father, it is so vastly important. And I pray this in Jesus' name. So for anybody who doesn't know, uh, the original language of the Old Testament is Hebrew, okay, except for a tiny bit of Aramaic. There's a little bit of Aramaic in there. And the entire New Testament, as we have it, is written in Koine Greek. And Koine Greek was the commonly spoken language of the entire Roman Empire uh, at the time of Christ. And it's, it's similar to classical Greek, but it's a little bit different, kind of like how uh, like our modern English is a little bit different from you know, old English with the, the E on the end of old and the A at the beginning of English. Um, so if you're wondering why we have so many different versions of the Bible in English, it's, it's not exactly like one of them is right and all the rest are wrong, but rather they're all uh, either translations of the original languages or else they are paraphrases of an English translation of the original languages. And so um, that, is, that is not to say that some Bible versions aren't more accurate than others, because some definitely are, okay? I would use a case 
if you're going to study the Bible, I would use, I would, I would just, I would plead the case that you use the most word-for-word translation that you can find and read and understand, like the, the most accurate to to the original languages, because I do believe that there is something specific to each word that God chose for these. But um, I also, I think the English Standard Version, that's the one that we typically use up here and that you often um, will have with you if you grab one of these Bibles back here that's on, I don't know what that is, nightstand, that little table. Um, If you grab a Bible or if you have your own, you're probably reading the English Standard Version. Um, I think it's, it's very accurate. It's still pretty easily read. But occasionally there's going to be a verse or a paragraph that I'm going to pull out of another translation because I really feels like, uh, I feel like it just grasps the, the concept better. It, it, it promotes better an understanding of what the actual original languages say. So um, I do that once in, in this message too. But anyway, the reason I'm talking about the original languages is to say there are three word families in Hebrew that are often translated uh, in, in English as forms of the word mercy. And we're going to spend a little bit of time looking at those. Now, um, I had a conversation this morning. I, I, I may have still the wrong uh, words in your uh, bulletin insert. It may be translated a little bit differently. Um, and forgive me for that. Uh, it, it's supposed to be racham. I think it's rashak in your... Uh, in, it is? Okay. Just ignore that. Um, and the next one is, is supposed to be uh, kana, not kana. Um, not that anybody here is going to go, oh, man. So disappointed in you, Mark. But anyway, um, but the first word is uh, is racham, and that can literally be translated to read like a loving caress. This is a, a very maternal word. Okay, it comes from the same primitive root as womb, which I think is really neat, and it brings to mind a, a mother that is lovingly holding and protecting her infant. Okay, so in your mind's eye, I, I want you to like. Picture, think about a mama who is cradling her newborn child who's sick, you know, maybe feverish, uh, and lying asleep in her arms, okay? Just picture that. It is a very deep, it's a very heartfelt sympathy, maybe even empathy. So racham is a pretty loaded word. Um, the next word that's translated mercy is the word kanal, which means, it means compassion or even pity. And it comes from a root word that means to bend or stoop. Okay, now I want you to picture someone coming to help someone who's fallen down. Maybe they're unable to care for themselves. Um, so to me, there's kind of a, like a top-down condescension to this word. And, and I mean that in the positive sense. I think it's interesting how, how the word condescending has taken on an almost entirely negative connotation over the last few years. And... Just bear with me here for a minute. I want to ask you, why do you think that is? When we think of condescending, why do we think, why does it bother us? Why does it offend us? Because somebody's looking down, right? It's, it's our pride. It's our pride that is offended, okay? I, I wonder how much of, of, of that negative way that we view that word has to do with our pride, because... The word literally means to come down along with. You know, to con, to come, descend. Descend with. But we use it often to mean belittling someone else. And it's ironic, we also say that a person is being patronizing. Why is that a negative thing? Just think about it for a second. 
What's wrong with being patronized? To be, if someone's behaving in a fatherly way, what's wrong with that? I'm just saying, maybe we're all a little bit too sensitive to people trying to help us. I don't know. Anyway, a, a person who kneels down to give food to a vagrant, or uh, even a king who, who maybe climbs off his horse you know, to, to mingle with the people, that's what condescending is. Okay, And it, it's, it's good... It's good for the people that are being condescended to, isn't it? Are you all with me? Okay, just checking. I want you to hang on to that thought. The third word we often see in Hebrew that's translated mercy is probably the most common one. It's the one that I bet you've all heard of at least once. And it's the Hebrew word chesed. It's usually translated as either mercy, if you're reading the King James, or loving kindness in some of the more modern translations. Um, but this word, this word is really thick with meaning. Kesed is, is mercy that is often undeserved, and yet, scripturally, it is expected to be reciprocated. I'm going to say that one more time. Kesed is mercy or loving kindness that is typically undeserved and yet expected to be reciprocated. Now, that's going to make sense when we dig a little deeper. But this is a word we see a lot. We see a lot in Psalms especially, but we also see it uh, in the Old Testament prophets. And so, anyway, we're going we're gonna to kind of move on, but, but that's, that's the Hebrew Old Testament. We're going to take a look now at the Greek New Testament. There are also, uh, I don't think coincidentally, three word families in Greek which translate to mercy. And it's really cool to me how they kind of seem to line up with the Hebrew. It, it's not dead on, but these are similar concepts, okay? The first one is actually both... Hard to, hard to say, and it's hard to hear because it has so many consonants in it. Um, it it's the word splanknon. Splanknon, okay? And believe it or not, it's where we get our word spleen, all right? Splanknon. The word literally refers to organs, okay? Heart, lungs, liver. But it's, it's actually, what it's referring to is a, a deep feeling in the innermost parts of a person. Okay, now before you start thinking that sounds goofy, I want you to bear in mind that we consistently refer to having gut feelings, right? Or to having, uh, being heartbroken, to loving our family with all our heart, right? So when we say these things, what we mean is strong emotions. And this word is often translated as compassion, okay? Meaning uh, emotional turmoil on someone else's behalf. The next Greek word is oiketirmos. And that's not, it's not used very commonly in the scriptures, but it has, again, it has a strong meaning. It comes from, from the word for pity, okay? And it's closely connected with pity in concept as well. It's to feel or to, to exercise or manifest pity. Now, I want you to picture someone uh, finding a dog that's been somehow gotten tangled up in a, in a bush, a thorn bush, and that person squatting down next to the dog and untangling it and setting it free. That would be a good understanding of this form of mercy. Okay? And then last, we have the, the more common word. This one shows up a lot in the Greek, and it's the word eleos. And this is an interesting word because it's literally the name of a false goddess, okay, who is, is considered the personification of the concept of mercy. In the New Testament, whenever you see uh, eleos, it, it typically means divinely given or God-inspired mercy, okay? God is generally 
uh, considered to be the source of Elios. So I know that was a lot of information kind of firehosed at you, but that's all right. Now that we have an idea of what the words both in Hebrew and in Greek that are used to express the concept of mercy in the Bible, I want us to put the two together, okay? Let's put those, those concepts together. And I think doing this is going to give us a, a much fuller understanding than just not receiving the punishment we deserve, all right? So, I mean, that's definitely part of it, but that's not even close to all of it. So we're going to look at these three facets of mercy in Scripture, and we're going to note how they flow into each other, okay? So combining, again, racham and splangnal, we see the strong concept of an emotional connection to mercy, okay? There's a feeling of heartbreak that one person gets when they are moved by another person's struggle or another person's pain. Now, of course, by itself, just, just having a visceral reaction or response to suffering, that doesn't necessarily lead to doing something that alleviates the suffering, does it? Not necessarily. There's times where, where we see somebody and go, oh, that's so sad, but then we don't help them, right? Does nobody want to admit that? Or are you all asleep or what? I mean, people are looking at me. Have you painted your eyes on your eyelids or something? Just, just checking. Y'all are very quiet this morning. I don't like it. I don't like it. Speak up. Um, so this is, uh, this is when, when, when Kana and, and Oiktirmos are so important. They show how emotion translates into action. Okay? It's not just, oh, and then moving on. Okay? This, this looks like that, that beautiful kind of con, uh, condescension when one person stoops down or lowers himself or herself to another person's level in order to be able to serve them, okay? But those, those actions, ultimately, the action is, is connected to a decision. It's a choice to treat another person with kindness, even if, and this is, this is key, even if that person has disqualified themselves from deserving that kindness. Mercy, listen. Mercy is a choice. Mercy is a decision, and it usually requires sacrifice in some way, especially with forgiveness. You know, to, to forgive is either to release or to absorb uh, a debt or an offense that someone has committed. And there is a choice that's inherent in any situation that requires forgiveness, okay? This matters. This matters because the choices that a person makes are always going to be consistent with the character of the person making the choice. Is that too much? Y'all get that? You're always going to do what is consistent with your character, ultimately. Now, looking at all of this, then, we can only conclude... That mercy is consistent with God's character. Okay, based on everything we know about the Lord from within the scriptures, we can see that he is truly a merciful God. And now we, we, we have this better idea of what mercy is. We can understand God's character better, okay? And that's really, that's the thing that the Bible is for, friends, is to help us to see God as he is. And then to recognize ourselves for who we are and why we need him so desperately. 
So we're, we're here, we're learning about God's character and then what all that means for us. So if you're taking notes in the bulletin insert, this is where we go to the right side of the page, okay? Uh, I want to start that side of the page with this declaration. God's mercy is immense, okay? It, it is, it's grandiose. All the big words, it's spectacular, it's magnitudinous, it, it's Brobdingnagian, you know, it, it's, it, it, it's huge, okay? You know, it's, well, I mean, think about it. He, he chose to turn the heart of the mighty king of Babylon, okay? He chose a, a poor peasant girl to give birth to the savior of the world. I mean, he, he chose a, a zealous Christian persecuting Pharisee to be probably the greatest Christian missionary that ever lived. He chose you and you and you and you. He chose me. That's mercy. God's mercy is immense. Now, the question is, why would he do that? I mean, why, why does that even make sense? You know? I mean, a lot of what God does, I think, seems totally bizarre to us because he, he really, he operates on a completely different wavelength, right? I mean, doesn't he even say that in Scripture? He says his thoughts are as, as high above ours as the, the heavens are above the earth and his ways, you know, in a similar way. It's, and yet as, as high and exalted as he is, he cares for people, and particularly his people. You know, and it's, it's things like this that make me ask, along with the psalmist, you know, if you're familiar with Psalm 8, he says, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that, that you care for him. You know, I mean, he talks about how he hung, he hung the stars in the heavens. You know, he uses a word, works of your fingers, that essentially would mean needlepoint. You know, just something so small to God. Despite how tiny, how, how insignificant we may appear in the grand scheme of, of the universe, the Bible refers to us as God's masterpiece. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. For you are God's workmanship, his masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus to do good works that he prepared beforehand in order that you may walk in them. It refers to us, even this morning, we looked at Genesis chapter 1, as made in his image. And the Bible tells us that we are objects of God's mercy. God has intense emotion for us. You know, look at Isaiah 49 where God says, Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should not have compassion on the son of her womb? And then he goes and says, You know what? Even she might forget. I will not forget you. I remember one time when Judah was a toddler, I absentmindedly, um, I, I parked at Walmart, I walked inside, I'd even already grabbed a cart, when suddenly I remembered that I had a child in the car. And I was horrified. I ran back so fast, you guys, and people probably thought I was shoplifting. And, and I mean, Judah was fine. I mean, you know, other than obvious. He, no, I'm kidding. He was, he was mad. His toy was in the front seat, and he was glowering at me when I got there, but, but he was fine. Wasn't 110 that day. 
Uh, I was probably gone for a minute, but still, I was, I was so, I was terrified. Even human parents might forget their child, but God never does. Never. He never forgets you. He says right after that verse we just looked at in Isaiah 49, he says, you are engraved on the palms of my hands. We forget, guys. I hung, I hung the treasure chest stuff, which, by the way, fresh treasure chest stuff, I hung it on the door, on the knob to take with me this morning. Still had to call my wife and say, hey, can you bring the treasure chest stuff? God does not forget. Never. You could argue that God is the ultimate helicopter parent because he knows, he knows apart from him we can do nothing, no thing. He knows that. We are stuck with him because we can do nothing without him. We need him every hour, every moment, every nanosecond. We need him, and he is invested in us. He feels deeply on our behalf. You know, we see this more tangibly in Jesus Christ because, because he was the, the incarnate God the Son and the Son of God in the flesh. You know, he, Matthew's gospel has this narrative. It tells us where Jesus is, is going across the sea. He arrives by boat on one side of the Sea of Galilee, and the people had shown up in this huge multitude to see him, right, and, and, and to hear his words. And Matthew says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. That, that word compassion, that's that Greek word that sounds like spleen, okay? God has deep compassion for us because he, scripture says he knows our frailty and our frame. He knows that we're basically just dust. Now consider this. Jesus saw these people who were truly pitiable, right? And his heart went out to them. He felt sympathy deep down inside himself. Isn't it awesome to think that God is capable of such raw emotion like that? That he feels, he loves so deeply. He's moved by his love for people. And that's not just in a figurative sense. God didn't just go say, you know, he, he wasn't like, wow, that's really moving. And then throw his popcorn thing in the trash and go home. That's not what happened. No, Jesus looked out and he saw these people and he was so moved that he ended up staying and teaching them for hours and hours and hours. But hey, let's, let's go back a little further because way before this, he was moved from the very throne room of heaven into the womb of a virgin so that he could be born in a filthy food trough in a stable. This is, this is where we clearly see the emotion aspect of God's mercy turned to action. Okay, the Lord himself stooped down to care for us. He condescended. You know, Matthew and Luke both give us details from the human side of things, whereas John, John chapter 1 tells us the heavenly perspective, and it's so similar to Genesis 1. It's really cool. You know, he says, he says the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And Paul expresses it in this beautiful poetic way in Philippians chapter 2. It's called the Carmen Christi. It says, Christ, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, 
and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Anybody remember the rest? Even death on a cross. That is some serious condescension. An entirely positive one, too, for us at least, right? We know from Scripture that it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross, scorning its shame. But it's still kind of hard to swallow, you know, because he, he, he became sin so that you and I might become the righteousness of God. Why would anybody do that? Why would anybody do that for, for a sinner like me? Or, or like you, or like you. I mean, why, why would God do that? Because he is a truly great and merciful God. He's so merciful, he became one of us in order to save us. He's so great that he rose from the grave as eyewitnesses claimed and as the scriptures foretold. And it was only, it was only by lowering himself that he was able to raise us up. All this was done by choice. Jesus chose to fulfill the Father's will and submit to a terrible execution. But you know what? If you really think about it, the decision wasn't just made in Gethsemane. I mean, it was made way before that, from the foundation of the world, Scripture teaches. You know, God, God made the decision to send his son to die as payment for our sins. Jesus made the decision to die as a payment for our sins. All this is due to the simple fact that God's character is perfectly just, and so he requires a life as payment for sin, but he is also perfectly good. And so he has chosen in his mercy to pay the price that we could not. Because of who he is, our God steadfastly loves us and freely forgives us. This is all despite the fact there's nothing, there's absolutely nothing we can do to, to earn this great privilege. You know, really, in, in spite of the fact that we've rebelled against, I've actively chosen to rebel against him, and, and we've given him every reason not to show us mercy, he does anyway. In fact, we see in Scripture, the greater the sin, the more beautiful the mercy that overshadows it. You know, mercy triumphs over judgment, praise God. There's a wonderful passage in Micah 7 at the, the end of the book. Um, read part of it earlier where the, the prophet says, who is, actually we read all of it earlier, but I'm going to read it again. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in chesed, steadfast love. He will again have racham, compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You'll show faithfulness to Jacob and chesed, steadfast love to Abraham. See, because he, because he delights in mercy, he will have mercy on us. You will show faithfulness and mercy. And then look at that sentence in the middle. I love that sentence. You will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. Hey, has anybody here ever lost your glasses in the pool? Anybody? Right? Yeah, you lost yours in the lake a couple of times. You know, yeah, <laughs> right? Okay, 
I wouldn't even want to, in the lake it'd be, it'd be you know, impossible pretty much. But even in a pool, my vision's not even that bad. But if I lose my glass, I mean, I'm in the pool, you know, it's four feet deep. The water's clear, and I'm trying to find my glasses. Can you imagine trying to find something that's been cast into the depths of the sea? You know what? When God wants to find something, God finds it. But when God wants to lose something, it stays lost. Your sins are in the depths of the sea if you're in Christ Jesus. They're as far from you as the east is from the west. They're gone for good, never to be dredged up again. We serve a merciful God. So then, uh, how should we respond to his mercy? We're just going to talk a little bit about that, and then we'll go eat. All, all this glorious mercy can do, can do no ultimate good to us if we continually reject it, if we keep rebelling against him. Okay, It's free, but it has to be received. And so how do we receive this marvelous gift? Where'd that come from? Ah, say it louder. By faith. Hey, you're ahead of me. Good for you. The Apostle Peter explains it like this in his first epistle. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great eleos, mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an unfading, excuse me, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by whose power? God's power, right? Are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The first and only thing that we need to begin a relationship with God is faith. Now, a good understanding of biblical faith, okay, is belief that leads to action. So in order to receive God's mercy, first we must do so by faith, but that's only the start of our relationship with God. Friends, please, please listen carefully, okay, to what I'm about to say here. The rest of Peter's epistle is very clear, okay? If we treat God's mercy as a license to sin against him, we are digging a very deep and dangerous pit for ourselves. This is not what we're called to do as Christians. We should thank God for his forgiveness, but we should never, ever take it for granted, church family. Never. If, you're on, if you are on a Godward trajectory, then you are, you're likely to notice your sin more acutely than you did before, even though you may do it less than you did. And you're, gonna, you're probably going to feel worse about committing sin when you do. You're going to want to repent and come to your father and, 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 and tell him you're sorry much, much sooner. Not because you're afraid of losing your salvation, but because you don't want to damage your relationship with God by displeasing him or by harming yourself. You know, if, if nothing else, remember that God still disciplines his children when we disobey. And it's not, it's not pretty. You know, the author of Hebrews famously said, it is not pleasant at the time, <laughs> right? I can, I can attest so rather than running the risk of abusing God's mercy, instead, why don't we offer ourselves completely to him? Isn't that what we're supposed to do? I mean, this is, after all, what he commands us to do. I'm sure most of you are probably aware 
by now, uh, that Romans 12 is one of my favorite chapters of the Bible, especially I really like the first couple and the last verses. Uh, today I want to focus on verse 1. We're going to read it out of the God's Word version because I really feel like this particular verse is captured really well. The, the gist of the original language is captured really well in this translation. Paul writes, brothers and sisters, in view of all that we have just shared about God's oikirmos, compassion, I encourage you to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, dedicated to God and pleasing to him. This kind of worship is appropriate for you. That last sentence can, can be very accurately translated as, for this is your reasonable religious service. In other words, before, before this, Paul was saying, look at all this amazing stuff that God has done for us through Jesus Christ because of his love. Now he's saying, as a result, doesn't it just make sense that we give him everything we have and everything we are? Isn't that just the obvious response? His mercy is not, it's not an excuse to be slack about our Christian walk, guys. This is motivation to live exclusively as though we're, we're living to show our gratitude for what he's done for us in Christ. This is how we ought to live. So we receive his mercy by faith, we respond with gratitude and obedience, and then we make sure that we exercise mercy towards others. You know, if you look back at your notes, you may remember that uh, the Hebrew word that's translated mercy or loving kindness is given freely and undeservedly, but I mentioned there's also an expectation of reciprocation. Okay, now you may wonder, well, how is that possible? <laughs> how are we supposed to reciprocate this? I mean, obviously God doesn't need mercy because he, he, he's, in, he's incapable of sin. The Bible says he can't sin, and thus he can never need forgiveness. But see, here's the key, okay? God's mercy is one of those, those attributes of, of God that, that's communicable rather than um, incommunicable. So, so what that means is all of his, his creatures that are created in his image, which is us, we can share that same trait or quality, okay? We'll never be uh, any of the omnis. You know, we're not going to be omniscient. We're not going to be omnipresent. We're not going to be omnipotent, you know, but we can be merciful, that is a communicable attribute of God. We can be and we are commanded to be merciful. It is God's prerogative to ensure that we share this attribute, okay? So, so like our Heavenly Father, as our hearts soften, we're going to begin to experience sympathy, even empathy with those who are struggling, who are suffering. Instead of ignoring their pain, we're going to feel moved to act, and this, this is a decision that we should be making in light of what God is doing inside of us, right? Not just in light of what he has done, in light of what he is doing in us. He's sanctifying us. He's molding us in the, the same image of, of Christ that he's expecting us to live out. There's a very famous story in the Gospel of Luke about a man who's left for dead by robbers. And then he's ignored, remember this, by, by a priest and then by a guy that works in the temple. But then along comes a Samaritan. Now, a Samaritan was a, a, a group of people. The Samaritans were a group of people that had a mutual animus 
with the Jews. They hated each other, right? But this guy comes along. He sees this broken Jewish man, and he puts him on his donkey. He takes it. He cares for his wounds. He pays a, a guy that runs an inn to take care of him further down the road. And then Jesus, he tells this parable, and he asks the shocked crowd that are listening to this story. He says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? The scribe said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. I love this story because the scribe is actually, it's funny. He, he's talk, it says he was trying to justify himself when he asks the question of Jesus. So basically, he's, just, he's trying to be a legalistic weasel here and say, how do I, how do I get away with being the least uh, kind that I can be? And so he's saying, Jesus, who is my neighbor? Instead of answering him directly, Jesus flat out tells him, you go be the neighbor. That's pretty cool. Way to turn the tables, Jesus. So this is what we ought to do, guys. And the mercy in our spirits, get that out of your glasses, please. Thank you. The mercy in our spirits, which was put there by God, that should pour out of us. It should, it should come flowing through us, particularly, friends, with respect to our brothers and sisters who have hurt us. And here, we're almost done here, but here's where we're going to get to meddling, okay? Going from preaching to meddling. It's the last point. I'm going to give you something to take with you, okay? Sometimes it is easier to show undeserved kindness to a stranger than to someone close to us who we believe has mistreated us. As children of God, though, we need to be like our heavenly father or like our heavenly brother who prayed for forgiveness for the people who nailed him to that cross. And you may not believe that it's possible to, to forgive, you know, what, what's been done to you, or maybe you, you may believe it's impossible to be forgiven for something that you've done. But, but here's the thing, okay? That's because you're not operating in the power of the Holy Spirit yet. Forgiveness is a necessity for a Christian. Try it on, my friend. Try on the Holy Spirit. Paul said in Colossians 3, put on then, put on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. That's the word splankna and ortimo right next to each other, okay? Kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Maybe I should say those more slowly. <laughs> Humility, meekness, and patience. And listen, bearing with one another. I like that phrase. It's almost like saying tolerating each other. <laughs> bearing, persevering, bearing with one another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. On a scale of one to 100%, what has God forgiven you? 100%. What are we required to show to others? 100, I didn't hear enough people say that one. 100%, say it with me. 100%. We need to 100% forgive people. Just as we have been fully forgiven by Christ, we need to fully forgive others. Church, 
God has the right to demand that all of his children freely forgive just as he does. And honestly, this is such a huge subject, like, uh, it would require another sermon to really do it justice, but today I'm just going to say this. Listen, if you are struggling with forgiveness, no matter what has been done to you, I urge you, urge you, go read Matthew 18 today. Read it when you get home. Go read Matthew 18. To put it bluntly, a Christian does not have the option to be unforgiving. Okay? By refusing to forgive and be reconciled to a brother, we are placing a barrier in the way of God reconciling us to himself. The word of God makes it clear. Those who wish to continue to receive mercy must give mercy. We're going to finish with this. I'm saying finish so you guys are resting your eyes can, can be ready. We're going to finish with this, okay? I, I'm going to, I want to say, I received an article on Monday, right after Everett had suggested to me on Saturday, hey, you should do a sermon on mercy. And I was like, you know, I'm thinking about it. You know, thank you. That's a, that's a good idea. I'll, I'll, I'll. Monday, I get this, this, uh, this message in my inbox, verse 15, about mercy. I was like, all right, God, let's see how it is, you know? And so, and so here it is. Um, his timing is perfect, so I just, I just want to end this message with a quote from that article. The author's name is Jason Upton. He wrote this. God knows forgiveness is difficult. He knows it takes courage and strength to offer mercy where it's undeserved. He paid the highest price for our sins by sending Jesus to an undeserving, gruesome death. But he also knows the joy that comes from reconciliation. He knows the goodness of wiping the slate clean so that he might have a restored relationship with us. And he longs for you to be a minister to reconciliation to all who have hurt you. He longs to overwhelm you with his love and mercy to the degree that offering others mercy and love comes, listen, comes from a place of overflow rather than your own strength. I love that. He longs to fill you with courage and perspective so that you can forgive those who need a glimpse of his mercy and grace. Let's pray. God, I ask in Jesus' name, we ask that you will make us vessels that pour out the overflow of your love and mercy onto others. Father, may we be uh, adequate in showing the world. I know, Father, that we are, we are fallen and we'll never be perfect in, in the, the sense of sinless, but I pray that we will be mature, that we will show people Jesus and the, the incredible love and grace that you have for us so that whenever we speak to them, they, they sense that your, your presence is with us and they sense that love and mercy. May we forgive our, even our enemies, Father, that they might be reconciled to us and more importantly, be reconciled to you. Father, may we forgive that our reconciliation with you is unimpeded. I pray for everybody here, Lord, that today I just ask that we have a fuller understanding of your mercy and we walk away knowing that we truly are pitiable creatures, that, that you, you had no reason that makes sense to us other than the fact that you are so great and loving that you would save us. And so thank you that you are so great and loving. Thank you for being who you are. And it is in Christ's name that we pray.
This morning, if you recognize your need for Jesus Christ and you've not yet received him as your Lord and as your Savior, if you've not put your faith in him, if you've not been baptized the way the Bible teaches by immersion in water, if you have not, uh, as a believer, if you have not uh, professed your faith before man, I pray that you'll do so this morning. I ask you to do so this morning. And if you've done those things already, then, then I, I ask that you might consider uh, placing your, your membership here with this body if you haven't done that already. And if you're here this morning, you're like, you know what? I'm good on that, but man, I'm struggling. I need prayer. 